0: All right, let us open up the Word of God to Hebrews chapter 12. Let us open up once again to Hebrews chapter 12. And we are going to look at verse 14. We're just going to read verse 14. We come once again to the Blessed Epistle dealing with the Aspect of the experience of the Christian running the race, looking back in chapter 11 to those who have went before us. Now we enter into this section beginning here in chapter 12 where we have a series of exhortations that specifically are dealing with us ensuring that we end this race that God has called us unto. Hebrews chapter 12. Look with me at verse 14. The word of God says, follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. Let us go to him in prayer. Our gracious heavenly father, Lord, we pause and we come before you. And Lord, we just want to tell you thank you for... Just the blessing that we have received thus far in our worship of you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for oh your songs of joy and praise that your spirit has placed upon our hearts. And we we sing, dear Lord, unto your glory. Thank you for these many precious, simple, but powerful means of grace. Oh God, to encourage us and to strengthen us in our pilgrim journey here on this side of glory. Heavenly Father, as we come once again to this topic of holiness, we come once again to this dimension of your work that is performed in our lives as your people, understanding you are, as we have already seen in previous lessons, doing an operation in our lives. You are nurturing. You are discipling. You are chastening. I pray, God, that you would give us palatable hearts to hear. Give us, O God, ears to accept that which is said. And, Lord, help us to grow. Grow in the image and the likeness of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. We ask your blessings now in his holy name. Amen. Well, if it makes you feel any better in our third message to holiness... Um, There have been men who have done many more messages. I've not made it a secret that I've been consulting not only the scriptures, of course, and my private time and devotion and prayer with the Lord as I've considered this verse 14 and this call to holiness. I've made it no secret that I've been reading a lot of Horatius Boner, Thomas Brooks, and J.C. Ryle, so you keep hearing them come up again and again in my messages um, and brothers and sisters, Thomas Brooks he preached fifty-eight sermons on pursue holiness from Hebrews twelve fourteen. I'm only on number three. I think we have one more to go, uh, but but that is a worthy topic, really to dig into and to unpack. I believe that oftentimes when we come into messages regarding personal sanctification or a challenge to personal holiness we're oftentimes indifferent to them uh, because of just our own past experiences Um, if we're correct in our understanding of scripture we understand we still have an old nature and we understand that we will never be perfectly glorified on this side of heaven we dealt with those theological errors and the first message and because of those repeated failures we come to these things and And we just kind of, in a way, aren't too excited about getting down into the Bible's teachings of personal holiness. But we don't have that privilege, unfortunately, to remain in such a state of mind toward that teaching or that doctrine. We don't have the privilege to have or maintain such a disposition. Well, because quite frankly, just what the text says in verse 14, without this, no one will see the Lord. And so we already looked at it. It's it's very important that we properly define and understand what it is we're talking about. And I hope after today's message, if we've entered into in the past or currently have such a disposition of heart about the call to pursue holiness, to grow in holiness, I, I hope today and then, Lord willing, next Sunday that we turn a corner and that you will begin to look at personal holiness and sanctification in a little bit different light And that you indeed would be excited. Your souls would be inflamed and excited to to really pursue holiness. To really call and ask God in your prayer time to help you to grow in sanctification. Horatius Boner, I'd like to open up with a thought from him to kind of get us in the trajectory we're going today. He says, holiness, especially the type that's being referred to here in verse 14... Holiness may be called spiritual perfection, as righteousness is often called legal completeness. And both are exhibited in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the representation, the illustration, the model. Likeness unto Jesus is the holiness here spoken of. He that is holy is conformed to Jesus. Every other ideal is vanity. And that is why in my approach dealing with what is the biblical holiness here that we're to pursue, without which we won't see the Lord, I wanted to deal first with the errors. And we saw that there are theological and doctrinal errors that have led many to a state of bondage and spiritual depression and destruction. And then we even saw that some of these beliefs can develop in church culture, family cultures, and individuals' lives into certain practices that can also miss the mark of the holiness that's being talked about in verse 14. And so we begin to tiptoe last week into identifying what is the holiness, what is the sanctification talked about? And we had to to get to that correct definition, first looked at what is justification, what is biblical adoption, and then you remember we landed finally on the correct definition of holiness that we are called to pursue in verse 14 and if which no one does pursue they will not see the lord the definition you see in your handout comes i think very succinctly from our catechism and it says that holiness that's being talked about here in verse 14 it is a work of god's free grace whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God. I want you to remember that. It's going to come up later again in my sermon. We are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die into sin and to live, I don't like that word live, um, to righteousness. Now when the Bible talks about sanctification, talks about holiness, usually it's presented in three senses. There is the sense that we are holy. We are, that is, sanctified, set apart, and that's referring to justification, right? And we looked at that last week. And then there's the sense the Bible describes us as being sanctified, being made holy. And that's where we're at right now in verse 14. That's what Horatius Bonert was talking about and our catechism is talking about. And then the Bible uses this idea of us and our holiness and being sanctified in a sense, to where we will be sanctified. We will be, you could say, holy or made holy. And that's our glorification. And that will, of course, only happen upon our death when we enter into our final state of glory with the Savior, referring to that final state of holiness that we all long for. Listen how our Confession of Faith, if you have any notes, says it. The souls of the righteous are made perfect in holiness. There's that Aspect of final holiness, complete holiness, uh, entirely mature holiness, they will be made perfect in holiness and received into paradise where they are with Christ and behold the face of God in light and glory. We're talking about, and we're going to continue to develop the idea and the understanding of being made holy. That is, in this journey between our conversion and when we die eventually and enter into glorification and we are being called today to pursue and to advance and, and to grow in this aspect of sanctification. Now in theology, what this is often called, this progressive journey, you've heard this term I'm sure, is that it's known as progressive sanctification. I like to refer to it because I believe it's more accurately uh, described as experiential sanctification, I understand where progressive sanctification comes from because you noticed in our catechism definition, it is this ability enabled by God's free grace, whereby we more and more die into sin and live unto righteousness. So there's a progressive sense. So I understand that. But experiential sanctification, I believe, is more accurate because what sanctification is that we're talked about being talked about in verse 14, we're called to pursue. We're we're called to go after it. Friends, it is really, the essence of it is the effect, it is the byproduct of living a life in conformity to God's will as it's revealed in his word. Let me say that again. Progressive sanctification or the holiness talked about in verse 14, it is in essence a byproduct of something that is produced in our lives As we, by a series of choices, decide to yield unto God's will as is revealed in his word. That's called obedience. So, sanctification is really the effect of obeying God's word. And the reason I like experiential sanctification better than progressive, even though they mean the same thing, is because this sanctification that's talked about in verse 14 which is the effect of obeying through a series of choices, God's will is ruin in his word, is not just theoretical. This sanctification is experienced. It's experienced in an individual's life as he makes a choice to die unto himself and to live unto God's will. He experiences it. He knows it. We are cognitive creatures. We have reasons. We have the, fic- uh, the faculties to discern and to make choices, so forth and so on. And as we're going to see in a moment, we've been given the Spirit of God. And so we know we come to a crossroad when it comes to what we want to do and what God's Word says we're to do. And when we make the choice to die into sin and to live in conformity to Christ's likeness, we experience that sanctification. And we'll see in a moment under what sanctification can do and cannot do. We'll see in a moment that it blesses us and it really does help us. But also, not only is it experienced by us personally within the seat of our conscience, it's also experienced to some degree, we have to admit, to those who are closest to us in our lives. Where an individual is growing, is pursuing sanctification, not only will they experience that sanctification and awareness of that growth in their life, but those around them will experience it as well. And all you've got to do to evidence that is think about your own experience. Uh, me and Jessica, but when we were married, we were not Christians. When uh, shortly after our marriage, a year to two years into our marriage, uh, God blessed our marriage and our family with salvation. And I could tell you right now, she I hope, honey, I hope you would say this. She would say to you as, as well as if you asked me about her, yes, I experienced, I witnessed a change in my precious wife. And she would say that, about me now she would probably say of me she wished that the change was greater and quicker and more advanced when it happened but nonetheless she would tell you yes i experienced a degree of sanctification that i witnessed in his life this aspect of uh, experiential sanctification i think is brought out wonderfully by jc ryle listen to what he says he says biblical sanctification experiential sanctification It's an inward spiritual work, which Lord Jesus works in a man by the power of the Holy Ghost when he calls him to be a true believer. The Spirit does not only, I'm sorry, Jesus does not only wash him from his sins by the power of his own blood, but he also separates him from the man's natural love of sin and the world. Now, he's not saying separates completely, and we'll work on that, especially that'll come out in the next message. But it, there is a sense in which upon conversion, being regenerated, there's a separation that takes place from the natural love of sin in the world. And then the says, the spirit places within the man a principle within his heart, and it makes him practically, that's the word experiential aspect, It practically makes him live a godly life. So when we talk about this verse 14, sanctification, it is tangible. It is something that's discernibly objective, that you will see, sense, and experience in your own heart. Uh, And that's an important aspect to, to, to bring up, we'll see in a moment. But it also will be something that others can see in your life as well. So sanctification, friends, as I said, is always experienced. It's much more than just a theological theory. Now, it's important that we nail that down because listen to what Ryle says if you choose not to agree with that. He says, quote, the man who supposes that Jesus Christ only lived and died and rose again in order to provide justification and forgiveness of sins for his people has yet much to learn. Whether he knows it or not, he is dishonoring our blessed Lord and making him only half of Savior if this sanctification does not result in a changed life. You're deceiving yourself, basically, Ryle's saying. Why is this all important? Well, it leads us into our first heading, you've seen your sermon notes. It leads us into understanding what holiness that's being talked about in verse 14 that I'm advocating is experienced in a real objective way, What it can do and what it cannot do. Well, first of all, let's just be really frank about this holiness, this growth in holiness. Predicated upon a principle that's given to you by the Holy Spirit to die into self and to live more to God's will. This cannot justify you. We dealt with that a little bit last week. You can remember that when we were dealing with justification, adoption, and sanctification. But let's just get it out of the way again here. It cannot justify you. I would go to Isaiah 64.6. There's many other pastors in the Bible to demonstrate this. But there Isaiah makes it very clear when it comes to our holiness, our good works, our good deeds, our good things we can do. He says, we all are as an unclean thing and our righteousness Are as filthy rags, and we all do fade as a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, have taken us away. And so, holiness, a growth in holiness, a performance in holiness, a a decided, sanctified ability to die into yourself and to live to God's glory so you're more like Jesus Christ, friends, it still will never justify you it's important to keep that category of understanding in its proper place, especially in light in the rearview mirrors we considered in our first message, all the theological errors which tend to conflate how a person is justified with holiness, right? Do we or do we not in our traditional hymns sing with joy this reality of what holiness cannot do? It cannot justify us? We know it cannot. We sing, for instance, what can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Remember the catechism definition? The whole man in the image of God. What can make us whole again? Not my holiness. Not my performance. Even though it's to be pursued. No, nothing but the blood of Jesus. And thus, biblical sanctification, experiential sanctification, it is not for the purpose of convincing you or anyone else, that you are justified before a holy God and creator because there were times where Jonah, David, Abraham, Moses, all the people, no, I can't say that. Many of the people talked about in chapter 11. If that was the case, if their outward holiness was to prove to you or those around them that they were indeed justified before God, friends, there were times where they could be called into question. Amen. Amen. And if any of us are honest in here, I'll put myself on the spotlight. Uh, there's been times in my own life where, if that was the case, I would be evidence that I, there's no way he's a Christian because look at how he's acting, right? But that's not the purpose of holiness because it can never do that. It can never justify us. Justify us? No. In that sense, we know we are legally 100% sanctified. We are 100% secure in what. The finished work of Jesus Christ, capital A, alone. By His blood alone. by Through faith alone. All to the praise of God and His grace alone. Amen? Hallelujah. We got that net settled. Knowing this is why we do know, I mentioned this before, that in verse 14... Um, It's not talking about justification because it says pursue it. Well, you can't pursue something that's already been secured for you by Jesus Christ, which he's already talked about in the whole epistle of Hebrews. But now let's come to what can holiness do? What can holiness do? Well, it can do a lot of things, and this is why Thomas Brooks has 58 sermons on pursue holiness. I'm only going to give you two that I think are the most important and practical and applicatory to your lives. The first one, as you see in your notes, is that holiness... Personal holiness, sanctification, which you will experience, which others around you will experience, it can add or it can subtract from your assurance of participation in grace and salvation. It most certainly can do that. A lack thereof can harm your sense of assurance. A practice thereof can add to a sense of assurance of grace and salvation. And the psalmist is the best place and perhaps is why it's the most popular book in the Bible because it illustrates this. You see a man who's truly born of God. He is, you know, uh, one of God's justified sons, King David. And what do you see in King David's life? You see this up and down, this up and down. At times he feels that he's on top of the world and God loves no one else but him. And then there's other times David feels like God has abandoned him completely, why? Because of his objective, his objective discernible life conduct and choices jeopardized his assurance. His either lack of holiness and sanctification growing in it uh, added or took away from this assurance. Look in your sermon notes with me. For instance, uh, this isn't unique to me. I'm pulling this straight from... The Confession of Faith, chapter 18, it outlines it this way. Um, It says, sometimes there's seasons in our lives where we fall into, quote-unquote, special sins. And these special sins, they wound our conscience, and they do grieve the Spirit. Uh, The the Bible speaks of the Holy Spirit as this personal being that anthropomorphically is assigned human emotions. God, of course, doesn't have emotions like you and I, but in a sense, the spirit is grieved when you make or I make a choice of darkness rather than light. And with that choice, of that, the confession calls a special sins. This is the Puritan's way of saying, while my sin that I struggle with particularly isn't your sin, we all have, you could say, our precious, right? And we all know what that is. And that's a Puritan's way to really just Prick your conscience of saying, you know what that is, and every time you make a choice to partake in that special sin you 're grieving the Holy Spirit, and your conscience is kind of nulled it 's kind of dimmed a little bit, and this is what we see it, it, it takes away from us an assurance of salvation when we make those mistakes. look at psalms fifty one twelve David this is David, and he clearly was evidencing um, a lack of assurance, a lack of joy. In the wrong choice that he made in his special sin, which was lust. He said to God, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. So you see there what holiness and sanctification can do. It can add or it can take away from your joy. David made an unsanctified choice. And look what it did. It it, it took From him, he sensed the joy of the salvation. He actually sensed that there was something different in my uh, relationship with my God. Of course, he's not talking about total abandonment, which he'll get to in a moment. He feels like he was totally abandoned. In other words, friends, when David's writing this, David wasn't writing this going, he pulls out, for those who can't see over here, I I got my confession of faith in my pocket here. And I pull it out and I look at it. Oh, and it's citing those Bible verses that says, I'm justified by the free blood of Jesus. And he folds it up and puts it in his pocket. And he's thinking in the back of his mind, Oh, I'm really saved, but God, will you restore to me the joy of my salvation? See, it wasn't like that. It truly did rob him of his joy. It truly did grieve him of his joy. The lack of sanctification. So in contra, what what can sanctification do? What can holiness do in your life? It can add to your joy, can't it? The opposite is true. Then there is, many of us have experienced this, the sudden or vehement temptations that come upon us. Um, how many of you in here have ever smoked in your past? Yeah. Yeah. I saw this just, I, I this popped in my head. I saw this odd billboard on the way to the job site this week that said, if you smoked when breakfast was a buck ten, you need to go have your lungs scanned. So, I when I was doing it, I was not breakfast was not a buck ten. I don't know, Ray, you might be in trouble. But here's the point here's the point here's the point. We know that the Bible describes us as being composed of both a physiological body, right and also an, a spirit, an immaterial spirit, a soul. This is the aspect of us that's eternal. Our physiological bodies, we know, miraculously, supernaturally, at the day of the resurrection, is going to be reshaped You know, in, a, in a microbiological way somehow. We're going to have a body that's similar to Jesus, and that's what's going to have it in, in a glorified state. Somehow or another, it's a mystery, right? But we do know, I emphasize that, Because through our choices, whether it's picking up and introducing nicotine into our body, whether it is picking up and adding any kind of stimulant in our body, whether it be caffeine, uh, I know we all here as Americans love our coffee, right? Uh, You try to take that cup of coffee away, what's going to happen? Your body's going to react to it, isn't it? Well, friends, when there's certain sins, you know what, let's just say this, and I, I know you know this, but let's just say this. What is sin? Sin is a transgression of God's moral law and a lack of conformity to it. A lack of conformity to it. Not doing what I know I ought to do. So when I, illustration, look at the the big pile of trash that's overflowing and everything, and I think to myself, I just can do that. No, you know you ought to help and do it yourself because you're thinking of yourself and you're not thinking of others, right? Just an example. Um, not trying to step on anybody's toes there, but that's just what came to mind. So that's sin, right? And as creatures who possess bodies, when you make a choice that is a sinful choice, that carries with it something that impacts your body, when you try to sanctify from that choice, brothers and sisters, I don't know who of you have went through this. I personally have went through this, and I have been with others who have went down this road the violent, the vehement temptations that come along to drag you back to the old man's ways, passions, and special sins, they can really rock. They can really shake your assurance. Well, why in the world do you have those vehement temptations to begin with? Because you made a concise choice to give in over and over and over again And you have built physiologically and spiritually a dependence and a habit upon that. And that lack of holiness, that lack of sanctification, now is rocking your assurance because why in the world am I being tempted like this? I'm trying to live a holy life, God. Why won't you just remove this stuff from me? Because it doesn't work like that. And this is how David felt. This is how David felt. Friends, you know that when he... Uh, committed the sin of adultery with Bathsheba. That wasn't David's first encounter with lust. No, lust was that special sin that burned within his heart. And so there was leading up to that and subsequently after that, there were times where David, no doubt, I'm using sanctified, uh, you know, Uh, uh, reasoning here but there would have been no doubt where he would have been pleading to god why have you abandoned me why why is this so hard for me why do i why doesn't he why doesn't she struggle with this like me because david had lived a life, and we'll get into this more, especially with the admonition of fleeing sexual immorality, he had developed a life of entertaining thoughts, of entertaining things, and actually acting out on things. So so now these vehement temptations are foisted upon him, and he begins to question, because of his lack of sanctification, he begins to question, are you really there, God? Am I even really one of yours? Because truly someone who's yours wouldn't it be going through this and be tempted to think these things? Tempted to go to these places? Tempted to partake in such sin? This comes out in Psalm 77, 7-8. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has His steadfast love forever ceased? Are His promises at an end for all time. You see, you just fall into this place. And friends, those vehement, violent temptations for any one of you, and I'm speaking from experience who's experienced this, this is how you feel. And what I'm trying to communicate is the reason you're in that place is because you and I have had a season of a lack of holiness and a lack of sanctification, which will greatly impede, greatly impair your ability to run unto the end why because you're being attacked with these temptations and you want to be free from these things we'll get into that more next time but secondly there is this aspect of God withdrawing his light of countenance for a season and allowing a true believer to walk in darkness and that ought to shock you because you ought to think to yourself wait a minute I thought that God was good. I thought he was God of purity and light and loveliness and et cetera, et cetera. Why in the world would he uh, distance himself from me and actually allow me as one of his sons to walk in darkness? We see it again and again, especially in the lives of the prophets who repeatedly what were called to you know do something in the name of the Lord and they ended up wanting to do what they wanted to do and God would let them continue to have that posture of heart until they ended up being at the bottom of some kind of dungeon pit or hole in Jonah's case under the shadow of a gourd before they finally cried out and said, Okay, God, help me. Will you, will you please give me aid and comfort? An illustration just popped into my mind of an experience that I just had with a pastor a couple weeks ago. Maybe I shared this with you. Uh, he'll go unnamed, there's a member in his church who was a former alcoholic and uh, after just a really uh, good season of just, you know, church community church life, you know, discipleship so forth and so on, the pastor's calling this guy and he can't get a hold of him, can't get a hold of him can't get a hold of him, so is a loving under-shepherd, he goes to the front door, knocks on the door the guy opens up the door and he's pretty much half drunk, he wasn't, you know sloshing drunk, could still talk, knew the pastor was, but he was kind of half drunk And he's talking to him, and the pastor was asking me, he's like, you know, what do you think about this? What should we do? What should be our response as a church? My counsel was, is, well, first of all, you know, brother, uh, until you've struggled with alcoholism, you have no idea of the hell that he's going through, right? And what you need to do is in all love and compassion as concerned under shepherd for a sheep that's feeding on poison berries, goat to him and say, listen, I love you, man. I know you don't think I love you. You think I'm trying to take away, you know, that what you want the most. But please, this is going to lead you to a path of destruction. You must flee from this. Turn with this. I'm here. I'll help you. I'm committed to Christ and to his people and to you, my fellow blood-bought brother, et cetera, et cetera. I said, and expect he will tell you, I don't want to hear about this. Get out of my face he may tell you that several times, but keep the door open with him. Tell him, all right, listen, when you get down to the bottom, and you will get to the bottom, that's where you're headed. Here's my phone number. Call me when you get there because I'm here waiting to help rescue you from the bottom. I told the pastor, I said, if he is truly one of God's sons, God may let him go all the way to the bottom of that alcoholic pit. Just to magnify his grace and his love in that man's life like that man has never experienced before. And perhaps some of you in here have experienced that. I know I certainly have. Going my own way, doing what I think I want, thinking that this is the best way out, et cetera, et cetera. And God said, okay, go ahead. I'll let you walk in your blindness, in the darkening understanding of your unsanctified mind. And when you get down to where you finally realize that my way's the right way, I'll be right here for you. And that's what happened. Well, when those things when we were walking not in holiness, but a lack of holiness. We will cry out like the psalmist in Psalms 30, you see in your notes, verse seven, by your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. But notice what he says. He says, you hid your face. It was as though you were hiding from me. Indeed, God was. Because in his wisdom, in his providence, in his most holy nurturing of you, That's what you needed. And perhaps someone here today, you're thinking wrong things about God. You're thinking wrong things about yourself. God will let you walk down that way in order to get you to a place where you finally will see, yes, the way of holiness, the way of obedience, the way of sanctification. That is the better way. That is the way I want to walk. But not only does holiness play this vital role in our experience as Christians of building up our assurance or taking away from it. It also very powerfully, and this is why we must preach verses like this and rightly interpret them in a correct way because it prevents presumption and self-deception in a person. God designed his word, the inspiration of his word to put these guardrails here to keep hypocrisy out of his new covenant community. Because there are some presumptuous persons who profess to feel a certain confidence and assurance in the gospel of Jesus Christ, but in their lives, there really is no scriptural warrant to validate that. Many of you, uh, you, you, you like, uh, what's his, uh, his name? Paul Washer. I'll never forget Paul Washer preaching a message one time. And, and it really struck me when he said it. He said, and he was talking about the presumptuous man, and he said something to, you know, Paul Washer, he's talking about in the sense, you know, you got the, you got the nice Bible, and you, and you got the Christian t-shirt, and the Christian necklace, and he's kind of going down that road painting this picture of a professor, and he says, I don't want to hear what you say you believe, I want to see your life, and see if your life evidences what you believe. You know, now you could take that either way. You say, oh, that's neo-legalism, that's neo-nomianism, you know, he's preaching works and all that. No, really what he was preaching was what we're talking about here. Um, there's much more to being reborn in the image of God and the whole man than just the theological encyclopedia you have in your mind. And it lives out itself in our lives. and And that's what is being really presented here. That's the guard, well, uh, guard rail. Sorry, The prevent presumption of such a person who says, yes, I'm a Christian. But yet, when you examine, really, it's not really us examining. It needs to speak to them. They need to examine their life. Where is my affections? Where is my love? Where is my passions? Because there's where your treasures truly are. In other words... There's always among the visible church people who think well of themselves much more than when the all-seeing God eye looks upon them and He thinks. Now, while it is true experiential sanctification may not be for the purpose of convincing us whether we're justified, friends, it certainly is intended to add to the joy and the assurance that is intended For the purpose or for the person who's received the gospel of grace and salvation. That's what it's intended for. Now, this is the transition that I hope excites you to pursue holiness because its intention is not to prove you're justified, its intention in God's plan is to give you the full assurance and joy that you truly ought to have as one of His sons and daughters. Understanding What biblical holiness can do. It is not a wonder. It is not any amazement to us. Why our loving Father places so much emphasis upon it. Not only in scripture. But also in the teachings of himself. His holiness and our holiness. Have you ever noticed in the Bible? There's always this emphasis upon God's holiness. And then we see from time to time where he connects his holiness and our holiness. Why is He doing that? What is the purpose? This is where it comes to the surface. There's many places in Scripture where God draws our attention and emphasizes both His holiness and man's holiness. And I think it's here, beloved, when we purposefully just slow down and examine and consider this connection between God's holiness and our holiness, it will enlarge our appreciation for this call to pursue sanctification, despite our past failures, despite how it's been presented to us before, despite being indifferent to it, and oh, I just, you know, can't get, muster up the strength to do it again. Just consider a couple of things here as we tiptoe into this. Let's begin by remembering, first of all, Genesis 127. There, you guys know, it says that God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created man man now John Gill he says in light of this being created in the image of God this image that we bear of the holy God he says that this consisted in our first parents of their purity their holiness and righteousness that is why they were to be God's vice regents God's ambassadors God's let's get that's the best word God's vice regents God's um can't go no farther than that, but be careful. Ambassadors here in the created physical realm was Adam and Eve, possessing this purity, possessing this holiness, and this righteousness. As Gill says, they resembled their Creator God. Now, this is what Gill is not saying in modern evangelicalism, especially amongst the more charismatic branches. Gill is not saying that they are divine in any way, friends. He's not saying that they were little gods in any way. No, he's being faithful to the text that in some way, man was originally created in the most blessed image of God. And that they were placed in this physical realm to be the ambassadors and have dominion as vice regents and resemble that reflection of God in all of its purity, holiness, and righteousness. And what Gil's really doing here is describing the attributes that God the Creator he chose to share and that man actually can possess, God chose to share certain attributes with his creation. Think about that for a moment. God, when he created mankind, he said, I want to create them and I want them to be able to experience my purity. I want them to be able to experience the holiness that I have and the righteousness that I enjoy. He wanted that and he gave us the capacity to experience and to know it. And so in their original state, Adam and Eve, they did possess all purity in a human sense. They did possess total, complete holiness in a human sense. And we know from the narrative in Genesis that their communion with God, look at these phrases, don't we, of Adam walking in the garden with God, this closeness, this intimate connection of full bliss and happiness. We know that in some sense, they were completely happy and they were completely blessed in that state of being created in the image of God, partaking in the communicable attributes that God chose to bestow upon them as his people. But sadly, their choice to disobey God's will, what was his will? His will, if you truly think about it, was centered upon protecting the happiness and the safety that they enjoyed as his image bearers in the created garden that he placed them in. Don't eat of that. Why? Because you will surely die. Well, we find out later it wasn't a physical death. What was it? It was a removal. It was a forfeiting. It was a loss. Of that holiness that they had, which made them happy, which made them safe, which made them content, which added to the blessed reality of who they truly are as humanity. They forfeited it. They lost some of it. So we can rightly say that at the fall, these... Humans that were created in the image of God, possessing these wonderful realities of what God communicated to them in His image, is what really made them completely human. And when they fell, part of their humanity fell as well. When they lost part of that, they lost part of what it means to be truly human. They lost what they once possessed. An ability to think, A.J., only purely. The ability to sense the experience of only holiness. Without any sin. That's how God originally intended man to be. And that's how He created them. And we know at the end of the creation week, yes, I believe it's a literal seven days week, God looked at everything and He said, it is good. It is good. And He rested. He was happy with His creation. He was happy with these creatures that He created, the pinnacle of His creation. And as they enjoyed and they were living in these attributes that He gave to them. As you see in your notes. Sadly, the choice to disobey God, they forfeited this. And in exchange... They inherited an inferior existence that the rest of their offspring, including you and I, would have to suffer with. But the Bible sets forth. This is what I want to draw your attention to. The Bible sets forth for us. And I believe this is what verse 14 is really thrusting and wanting to to really get us to understand. And we're going to see this in some subsequent verses after verse 14. But the Bible setting forth an understanding that by communion with God made available through Jesus Christ, we can once again partake In the holiness that was lost in paradise. Let me say that again carefully so I'm not misunderstood. The Bible is setting forth again and again that by communion with God through Messiah, we can once again experience, we can once again know the holiness that our first parents lost in paradise. Now, remember the introduction of my message when I said it talks about holiness, the Bible does in three different ways. You have it justified. You're being made holy. But you never will, don't misunderstand what I'm saying, you're never going to experience perfect holiness until you're free from this body of death. And so through Messiah, yes, we are called in sanctification to reach back and reclaim the holiness that was lost, but not in a sense of sinless perfection. That's absurd. You can't do that because you still have this remnant of the old self. We'll get into that more next week. But let us also appreciate, let us also see the big picture here in this call to sanctify and to pursue this holiness. It's a holiness which more closely resembles that holiness that was reflected in the very image of God possessing all of its beauty and all of its magnificent, lovely attributes. Verse 14, when it tells you to pursue holiness, it's telling you to reclaim that holiness in all of its beauty. God compares his holiness again and again, and I've lost so much time. How in the world did I do this? I didn't even think I had enough material to get through today's message. Uh, he connects this aspect of his holiness and our holiness in order to give us again that, ho- that happiness and that fulfillment that he has for us as man, especially his who belong to him through Jesus. Look in Leviticus eleven forty-four through 45. Here's an aspect where he brings his holiness and our holiness together, and I'm going to draw from it um, what, I just, what I just said, the reason he's doing this. He said there, I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves therefore and be holy. And I, For I am holy, he says. And as your sermon notes show you, it goes on to say, you shall not defile yourselves with any swarming thing that crawls on the ground. For I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. Now I'm just going to point out a couple of things I'm losing track of time here. But God is, notice, using his covenant name, Yahweh. And so there is this personal relationship, this personal concern for his people as their father, as their God. So there is this sense in which he loves them. He wants what's best for them. And he says, hey, I am the Lord thy God, right? And he wants them. He's concerned with them being separated and for his own purposes, their affections, their lives, their setting apart, being dedicated to them. He says, consecrate yourselves. And then this is where he brings up his holiness and their holiness. He says, for I am holy. Don't defy yourselves. You therefore be holy, for I am holy. Notice with me, it's unavoidable. He's connecting what he has done in verse 45, freeing them from the land of Egypt. Why? Why? So that they can be holy. Why does he want them to be holy? Because he wants to sit back and go, I'm glad you followed my rules, because if you didn't follow my rules, I was going to strike you with lightning, and and I wasn't going to give you no second chances. Well, in a sense, he does care about his, his laws being obeyed. You cannot avoid that in the Old Testament. But considering what we just thought about in Genesis... Considering what we're reading here now in connection with the purpose of freeing them from Egypt so that they could be holy, it wasn't to set back, it wasn't for God to set back with his arms crossed and say, I'm glad I finally got those little rebellious whippersnappers broke into line and got them whipped into shape. Now they're doing what I told them. No, no, no. If you're thinking about holiness and sanctification that way, beloved, I believe we're missing the mark. He did it. Why? Because He wants them to be restored in that which He created man for, to know Him, to walk with Him, and to grow in Him. That's the picture. Oftentimes when we hear passages such as this, we hear it preached upon with regards to God cares more about our obedience and not our happiness. And while in some sense, yes, He always is referring to a concern for our obedience... We should never view obedience and happiness as competing choices because that's not how God chooses to view it. The command to holiness here in Leviticus is inseparably connected to the well-being and the happiness of the Jews, especially, friends, when they're at a time surrounded by dark paganism all around them and idolatry. And to step into that mistake could lead to utter destruction. So you see behind the command to grow unto holiness and to be holy as I am holy, now that I got you out of Egypt and practice holiness... There's a loving disposition behind it to make sure that you are protected as one of my sons and daughters. And in this light, God's call to holiness and obedience is in fact the pathway to true safety and happiness. Do you see that? As it was originally designed by God before the fall. God's call to holiness, God's call to obedience is in this context the pathway to their safety and their happiness, because we know what happens when they did not obey God. Their lives were really horrible, weren't they? They had plague after plague, army after army, etc., etc. Because they yielded for they wanted to give their their life and their affections over to the pagan idols. I believe that this concept of what God's doing in order to bring forth a yearning for His holiness is what the Apostle Peter had in mind as you see in your sermon notes from 1 Peter 1.16 who Peter is quoting Leviticus 19 and he says he which hath called you is holy so be ye hope Peter says holy in all manner of life because as it is written be ye holy for I am holy now, God's holiness here through inspiration of in the Spirit by of the Apostle Peter is now expressed, is it not, as being in unity with Jesus Christ. He, 1 Peter 1.16 says, He which hath called you, what do you mean? Called you through the gospel in unity with Jesus Christ. Now, Peter is expressing being intimately connected with Jesus is the pathway to this holiness. In these texts, brothers and sisters, and many others like them, it is as though our Heavenly Father is communicating to us that in order to receive all that He has truly desired for us and to give us as experiential, cognitive creatures, sanctification and holiness is that pathway that must be journeyed. If you refuse to take it, you're forfeiting everything that your Heavenly Loving Father has in store for you. Imagine with me just for a moment if I describe to you this wonderful place. It's a destination where you could experience some of the most delightful, emotional, fulfilling things that you've ever experienced as a creature, as a man. And as I'm continuing with my descriptions of these things, as I'm telling you about this place, you you somewhat can relate to them because as I'm describing them, you're thinking, wait a minute, I've tasted that before. In a small way, I experienced that once. Yeah, 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 I know what you're talking about. Brother, you're saying there, that that place, I can experience that all the time, I can experience more of that because I tasted a little bit and oh man, my heart longs for that. Yeah, yeah, I'm telling you, that that place is real. You can go there. there. There's a way to get there. I promise you. But in order to get there, in order to get there, you've got to give up some things. And the things that you have to give up are things that you otherwise never think of departing from. Now these things could be all sorts of things. Beliefs, possessions, relationships, habits, or practices. And for each one of us, going back to what I said earlier, it's different for each one of us. However, the call to depart from them is the same because refusal to depart from them means... You're making a choice that this is too precious to me to give up and make room for what I know is better that this person's describing for me that God has. The place is true, the place is real. But we must die and we must depart from certain things that in the present seem like we can't live without them, but oh yes you can and you can obtain more of that which you know your heart through the Spirit is telling you to be true. Whether it is more patience, whether it is more long-suffering, whether it is suffering whether its freedom from lust, whether it is freedom from all sorts of different things, whether it is to grow in more love, well, whatever it is, that place is true. It is real. God wants you to be filled with that. He wants you to live in that. He wants you to know and experience the blessings of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ and to walk in his ways in essence I believe this is the understanding and the perspective properly of personal corporate sanctification that we need to cultivate in our own lives in our families in our churches sanctification is not the goal of following rules In your parenting, there has to be rules, but that's not the goal. In our church, we have to have constitutions and doctrinal frameworks. Yes, but that's not the goal. The goal is for all of us to grow, as Bonert said, in the likeness of Jesus Christ. Why do we have those guardrails? Because there's poisonous berries over there and they're definitely not going to promote likeness in Jesus. So that's why they're there. But the goal isn't that i got to follow those in order to be holy. No, 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 no. You're missing the mark. They're there for your protection. They're an avenue to utilize in order to grow in sanctification and holiness. We as Christians here in verse 14 are being called to pursue a journey, I believe, to reclaim that which was lost to sin. Thomas Brooks wonderfully says again, sanctification is designed by God to make his people holy that they may be happy. Well, Lord willing, next week, we'll consider the source of our holiness and pursuing it uh, more in depth. Now that I hope you agree with me that the main goal of holiness and why it's so important is because of what it can do in your life in your experiences as a Christian and becoming more like Jesus. And so next week, we're going to look at the source of that, that you're called to utilize, you're not in this alone, and what that looks like, so forth and so on. But let me conclude with this thought. Nowadays, we don't hear much about holiness anymore from pulpits. It seems, at least to me, that is, that the majority of the evangelical community, if it's reflected by... Contemporary Christian music, if it's reflected by much of contemporary preaching, it focuses way too much on God's love and how he's there to help us through all of our hurts and pains. And brothers and sisters, hear me clearly. That is certainly true. Amen. God is very much love. God is certainly there to aid and to comfort us in our times of need. But where are the messages about holiness? The right understanding of holiness. Because especially as we've been considering today, if we, like our Puritan forefathers, are on the right track about this way to happiness, this way to love, this way to joy that we all so long to have more of through the pathway of holiness, God has actually made it possible. All the other replacements for happiness... Are in fact, if you think about it, misplaced attempts and distractions that keep us dependent upon emotionalism and superficial gimmicks that, like a cheap band-aid, doesn't stick on for very long. Jesus, brothers and sisters, he purchased us. He then sent his spirit, the comforter, to enable us. And this is why Jesus repeatedly calls us to cooperate with His Spirit to reclaim the holiness that sin stole from us by conquering sin's power in our lives, one choice, one battle at a time. You know this verse well. Romans 8.29 teaches that God predestinated His people to be conformed to the image of His Son. That is... He predestinated us, our salvation, bringing us up in His family, justifying us for the mere purpose of making us more like Jesus Christ. Everyone in this room has been born once. Many of us, most of us in this room, we confess that we've been born twice. And if you've been born twice, the reason you were born twice is to be conformed more into the image of Jesus. It's not to appease God. Not to satisfy God. He gives you that sanctification to grow in for your happiness and for your joy, which He delights in. He delights in you experiencing and knowing what it is to be more and more like Jesus Christ. Let's go to Him in prayer. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we come before you and God, we ask that you would take the things that we have considered today and by your Spirit, spurn us on, Lord, to read, to pray, to study more of these things regarding what it is, O Lord, that even as our sons and daughters, we recklessly forfeit, God, by some of our own choices, sinful choices, that rob from us many of the assured blessedness God that you have in store for us by way of sanctification. God, as we will come into next week, understanding more the source and the power of this, our utilization of those things that you've given us as your sons and daughters to pursue holiness. God, we come before you and we do confess that we are weak creatures. We are frail as dust. We are enlivened. Uh, As the old divines used to say, we are energized by the birth that you have given us in the Spirit. But at the same time, O Lord, we know that we are plagued again and again by the old man. Father, I pray that you would enlarge that principle that Ryle talked about within our hearts. To Lord, give us eyes to see the many things that as your sons and your daughters, we have decidedly Uh, Lord, set aside. We have foolishly, Lord, uh, chosen things over that which is best for us as your sons and daughters, Lord, and thereby, Lord, we are forfeiting many of the wonderful blessings that you have for us as your sons and daughters. We thank you for the precious gift, the certain gift of our security and justification in Jesus Christ. But let us, I pray, God, let us not be That man Ryle described as being guilty of seeing your gospel as just this half gospel. Lord, we pray that you will guide, that you will lead, that you will animate us, Lord, into these realities to pursue holiness, God. Please help us, we pray, to know you more through your Son, Jesus Christ, by the power of your Spirit. And we would thank you for that. We know we do not, dear Lord, deserve it, we confess to you, or even right now, Lord, our own faults and sins. But yes, oh God, we do know your gospel is true. And as the young brother said, dear Lord, before I entered into my sermon, again and again, Peter, as he you know, fell, dear Lord, in denouncing Jesus, he came back and you were there and you were willing to forgive. And I pray, dear Lord, as we're entering into this different uh, approach to holiness, understanding in this way, that it is a pathway to more joy and happiness and contentment and blessedness in our lives. I pray you would do that. I pray that any of us in here, dear Lord, that are as Peter, you would pick us up and you would brush us off and by your Spirit, you would renew within us again, dear Lord, the desire to pursue it. Help us, dear Lord, as we set out and we learn next week even more to do what you have called us to do. We thank you and we bless you. And oh, how we worship you and give you glory. In Jesus' holy name we pray, amen.